You are listening to Seattle Growth Podcast, available free on iTunes. We're a major class city, and I know the Seahawks is hot now, And but before there was Seahawks, there was the Supersonics. <laughs> As legendary Sonics player Slick Watts pointed out, Seattle has indeed become a world-class city. Amazon's astronomical growth is well known, but Apple, Google, Facebook, and other high-profile Silicon Valley companies are also expanding their office presence here in Seattle. More than 10% of the population has moved here in the time since the NBA franchise Seattle Supersonics moved to Oklahoma City in 2008. And whether you are a basketball fan or not, a return of the Supersonics would have an effect on you and life in this city. The second season of Seattle Growth Podcast will look at just that. I am Jeff Schulman, a marketing professor at the University of Washington's Foster School of Business. I started Seattle Growth Podcast with a curiosity of what the rapid changes in this city mean to my fellow community members. I took listeners on a 13-episode journey into the minds of residents, businesses, and city leaders, including everyone from Stephen Abar to the mayor of Seattle. The response has been phenomenal. And now, Seattle Growth Podcast is back for a second season by popular demand. Why should you care about a potential return of the Sonics? Because the story is more complex than you might imagine. Yes, there's considerable enthusiasm for bringing them back. From people such as Hall of Fame basketball legend Lenny Wilkins. The sport is good for the city. It brings people together. It brings harmony. You know, people enjoy going to watch the game. Uh, these young athletes make their homes in your city. Their kids go to school. They pay taxes. They become viable citizens. So how could you not want that? But the return of the Sonics requires addressing some tough questions. Will your tax dollars go towards subsidizing an NBA-ready arena? Where would an arena go? How would an arena affect the surrounding real estate, jobs, traffic, and other aspects of life in this city? And if the Supersonics are to be brought back... What can we, the people of Seattle, do to ensure that any positive effects of an NBA franchise are maximized? Dr. Jen Hoffman, a professor at the University of Washington, describes how to think about a return of the Sonics. When we think about uh, the community, the greater Seattle area, we really need to think about it sort of in three frames. So if we think about what would be the social impact, uh, what would be the infrastructure or structural impact, um, and what might also be the economic impact. And this season of Seattle Growth Podcast will explore these issues so you can be better informed about how a return of the Sonics would affect you and your neighbors. With this knowledge, you can have your voice be heard on the issue while there are still many decisions being made. For context, efforts to return a professional basketball team to the Emerald City are picking up steam as former Sonics player and team executive Wally Walker describes. What we propose to do is privately finance, in other words, no public money whatsoever, this arena, the seven acres that's required to build a world-class arena, is bisected by a, a block, really an alley, of Occidental Avenue. To have enough room to build an arena, we need, really, it's just that strip of asphalt to be vacated. Uh, if the council approves that, then we can put a shovel in the ground the next day. City Council Member Tim Burgess describes the likelihood of an NBA return to the city of Seattle. This is a great market, and I think they, they get that. You know, what we hear behind the scenes is that they would, they would like to come back to Seattle. Now, to give context to the potential return, it is important to understand some of the history of the Sonics. In 1979, Hall of Fame coach Lenny Wilkins guided the NBA franchise as they brought the city its first professional sports championship. 
to come home and have won the championship, to me, it was just a great feeling. Uh, uh, there's nothing to experience like it. When we got to the airport, there had to be about 30,000 people at the airport. Uh, there was over 200,000 at the parade. Seattle native Steve Hussey recalled the fan excitement. Oh, people were high-fiving each other, driving down, driving. I remember I was home and road, going somewhere, and people were in both directions, high-fiving each other, going by. I mean, it was awesome. It was on fire. Starbucks CEO Howard Schultz led a large investment group in buying the Sonics in 2001. Five years later, the group sold the team to Clay Bennett and the Professional Basketball Club. In 2008, Clay Bennett moved the team to Oklahoma City after a settlement of the lease dispute with the city of Seattle. And so as efforts to return the Sonics back to Seattle pick up steam, there are important lessons from the Sonics' departure that one should bear in mind through the conversation of bringing them back. In today's episode, I speak with Craig Kinzer, a member of the ownership group that was led by Howard Schultz. And I speak with Paul Lawrence, who was the lead attorney for the city of Seattle in its trial attempting to force Clay Bennett to fulfill the obligations of the lease with Key Arena and keep the Sonics here in Seattle. Through today's episode, you'll get to hear what it is like to own a professional sports franchise, and you'll get more details about what events unfolded to leave Seattle without an NBA team. My first interview is with Craig Kinzer, founder and CEO of Kinzer Partners. I am here at Kinzer Partners with Craig Kinzer. Craig, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. So before we begin, why don't we start, uh, just tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I've been uh, here in Seattle since 1978, Uh, went to college in California and came up here uh, to go to law school and business school at the University of Washington. Then uh, went to work in what was then one of the big eight accounting firms and moved from that into real estate and venture capital. You were, in fact, a, a minority owner of the Sonics, the, the first go-around, so to speak, version 1.0. Um, that's a, a dream so many sports fans have. What was it like to be a part owner of a professional franchise? So uh, it, it was um, exactly that. It was really fun and a dream, especially for me, because I am not in that, pardon the pun, in that league, right? Um, uh, I remember uh, Howard calling me and asking me about it and um, the the amount of money that was necessary was you know more than I thought was prudent given you know my balance sheet but he allowed me to put together a partnership of other people friends of his and so I was the uh, general partner and, and as a result got to you know sit at the big boy table uh, having you know leveraging off of this all this money put into the partnership and it was really, really fun. And I worked with some great people, you know, Stan Bear, you know, Pete Nordstrom. It's where um, I got to know CEO of the Mariners, oh, John Stan. Yeah, so John, I got to know John real well. Great guy. I'm so glad that he's, you know, you know, running the Mariners right now. It was, so it was just it was just a lot of fun, you know, being there at draft day, you know, sitting on the floor. It was all the things that you kind of dream about. And, and there you're doing it. And, it, and I got to emphasize that for me especially, um, it was like being the cheap house on the block, right? <laughs> you know, <laughs> your value's going up because there's all these other big, one, huge, you know, beautiful homes and you're this little guy there, right? So it was, it was really an honor and I, I will always thank Howard for giving me that opportunity. And so through that experience and 
uh, the sale that ultimately led to their departure. What did you learn as a member of that Sonics ownership group that could help bring about a mutually beneficial outcome uh, should the Sonics return? And by mutually beneficial, I mean for the fans, for the owners, and for the city as a whole. I'll just say what, in my mind, I, I thought maybe we were attempting to do was be you know, financially successful, whatever that means, right? Have a winning team, very competitive team, and also have players there that were role models, right? Just good people. You know, Russell Wilsons, who goes, you know, visits children's all the time. Just somebody who the city could rally around. Well, doing all three of those is very, very hard, especially, I think, in the NBA with some of these, you know, young kids that you're, you know, trading for. And as I look at the most successful teams, you know, you would want an owner or an ownership group where money was less of an object. Um, I think that's the lesson I learned is uh, you, you, you don't want to ignore, of course, some of the financial aspects of it, like can the city help with the arena, building the arena in some way? Or um, if, like in the case of the um, key arena, if you're leasing it, make sure the lease terms are not onerous. Oftentimes the city will say, well, we want X, you know, we think that's fair market. But when you look at the league, and certainly we were uh, exhibit A, our lease was like the worst lease in the league. And so removing some of the revenue that would be used to make a very successful team uh, is difficult. So you want to make sure that you maximize whatever benefits that you can get, as it is a, you know, a city asset. Um, but then to have an owner who is thinking, you know, winning team, you know, uh, really great role model players and money is a, is a distant third, um, easy for me to say, but, uh, you know, I would, I, I look at, uh, Steve Ballmer as kind of an example, right? He paid a lot of money for the team that he bought down South and he is going to do whatever he can to make that a winning team while being as financially prudent. It's probably not number one. But if you have a group, a large group of which everybody is kind of trying to be too fiscally prudent, I, I think that that will be a difficult task while at the same time you're trying to bring in high quality players. And remember, once you, once you limit to role models, you're probably leaving some people on the table, and so the cost is going up even higher. So you want the best athlete, great role model, very high price, somewhat inconsistent with trying to be on an annual basis anyway, you know, stopping from having capital calls and things of that nature. In the past, people have been fortunate that when they do sell the team, it pulls them out. Um, but in the case of you know our uh, sale it was not really fun that financially lucrative and so do you think that have you seen any changes over the last almost 10 years now that might make it more likely that a team can return be profitable for the owners and also uh have the success for the fans and the and the city well again when you define success um if if you define financial success as having an asset grow in value Absolutely. I think the, uh, you've seen the Mariners, certainly their asset value has grown. So as an owner, you feel very financially successful. If financially successful means I want to cash flow and have distributions every year, 
I think that's sometimes difficult to do and at the same time put out a really a great winning team. Any concluding thoughts? You know, there are not too many cities that are in the transition that Seattle is in. For the longest time, we've been kind of a class B city, class A being, you know, San Francisco, New York, Chicago. But we're in a transition, you know, call it B plus, you know, A minus. The, the growth uh, is, you know, off the charts. The diversity of um, companies here, we all know what a great city it is to live here. So as Seattle becomes this world-class city, it begins to match other cities in a number of other things, whether it's um, iconic structures like what Bezos is building for us, right, with the, the spheres, um, or professional sports teams in which we're a city that has all the major sports teams, you know, NFL, NBA, uh, NHL, uh, 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 you know, uh, baseball, Sounders, right? So, so it becomes that much more of a robust city that can handle all these people coming in. Because as I think of our clients who are recruiting and retaining, they're recruiting into a great, beautiful city. And if you happen to be an NBA fan, it's great to be recruited into a city that has an NBA team. And, and every season, there's this charge, right? Especially if it's a winning team. So I see this as an opportunity that if we can all make it happen, the city and all of the citizens should get around it. Even if you're not a sports fan, um, I think it is still a huge plus for the city. And realize that the owners of the team are really the ones that are putting in the capital. They're taking a huge amount of their assets and, and even though they may have some upside you know, down the road, if they're coming at it and they're saying, this is kind of a public trust. I'm, I'm here with this team. My job is to really do what the Sounders have done, the Seahawks. You know, my job is to make the town rally around this. There's just no doubt in my mind that an NBA team is a wonderful thing for us if we can bring it in. And as... Uh, we look at opportunities to help an ownership group do that, whether it's uh, you know zoning, you know easements, whatever it is. Once you uh, have made sure to mitigate issues with others who are currently in those locations, we should do everything we can to pull that uh, to pull that in to continue adding to what is this upward trajectory, you know, of our city of Seattle. Uh, so I personally would be very excited. And, and the fact that there's people competing right now tells me that there's probably more of an opportunity for us to have an NBA team. And the math, you know, the math is not that hard in the big picture. It's all about TV revenue, right? And so let's say you have 30 teams, I'm gonna, and you, have, you divide the revenue by 30. Well, if you add one or two teams, does the TV revenue go up by more than the, the larger uh, denominator? Well, the answer is based on what kind of a market are you? And you know, I, I, I hear different things, but we're somewhere between 12 and 16, depending on media market, right? Well, we're one of those media markets that the NBA wants, that everybody wants. So we know that we are going to be accretive. So we know ultimately that the NBA wants to have us. And so the sooner, 
the better. Craig, thank you very much for your time and perspective. I appreciate uh, talking to you today. After Clay Bennett made his intentions known to move the team to Oklahoma City, the city of Seattle filed a lawsuit. The lawsuit asked that the Sonics be forced to fulfill the terms of its lease and continue to play its games in Seattle Center's key arena. It appeared the fate of the Supersonics would rest on the shoulders of Paul Lawrence, the lead attorney who tried the case. I sat down with Mr. Lawrence to get his perspective on the events that unfolded and what lessons from the case can be applied today. Uh, I'm here at the Pacifica Law Group with Paul Lawrence. Paul is the senior litigation partner at Pacifica Law Group, and he was the lead attorney for the city of Seattle in its case against the professional basketball club that eventually moved the team, the Supersonics, to Oklahoma City. Paul, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Uh, why don't you start by telling me just a little bit about yourself? I've been out in Seattle for about 35 years, moved out here after law school, and have been uh, practicing as a litigator, uh, doing a lot of my work representing public clients like the city of Seattle uh, during that time, and been involved in a lot of civic projects, uh, such as the baseball stadium, the Sonics case, Pipe Place Market, Sound Transit, uh, during the course of my career. Going back to the Sonics case, can you describe your perspective of the events that unfolded leading up to the departure of the NBA franchise? Really, to understand, I think, the departure of the Sonics, you have to go back to the sale from uh, Howard Schultz and his group to Clay Bennett. Um, at best, it was naive to think that Clay Bennett had a long-term goal to keep the Sonics in Seattle. Uh, but that was just one of several steps, I think, that ultimately led to almost the inevitability of the, of the Sonics leaving. Um, I think the vote of the citizens of Seattle, uh, Initiative 91, uh, to make sure that any investment in a new stadium returned a fair market return was, if nothing else, uh, a political signal about the concern that the people of Seattle had about spending money on public uh, sports uh, arenas. It passed with a huge percentage of the vote, uh, and that sent a political message, I think, to the city about the relative importance of spending money on sports arenas. Nothing specific about the Sonics, uh, but that was obviously the next and only sports arena left because the Mariners and, and the football stadium, uh, Paul Allen, had gotten public investment in, in their stadiums. And then uh, I think it's also important that the then Commissioner of Basketball, David Stern, uh, came out to Seattle and tried to work uh, and help Clay Bennett get some state funding for uh, a new stadium. And my perspective is that I think he personally just got uh, felt ill-treated by the state legislature and decided that he wasn't going to do anything to support keeping the Sonics in Seattle. Uh, so you have a series of events, uh, I think, that, that led to uh, the NBA and Clay Bennett determining that they were going to uh, support leaving Seattle and moving to Oklahoma City. So now they decide to move to Oklahoma City and the city hires you to enforce the specific, the specific performance clause. Walk me through what happened in, in the case in your mind. Well, the, you know, the, the, the Sonics, uh, Clay Bennett Sonics had a lease with the city of Seattle that basically gave the city the right to require that the basketball club stay and play their games at the Seattle Center uh, for the full term of the lease as opposed to 
a right where they could say, okay, we're leaving and breaking our lease and we'll just pay you the money that we would have paid you otherwise. Clay Bennett wanted to move uh, the Sonics. Then we, the city filed its lawsuit to try to enforce the specific performance provisions of the lease with the goal at the end of the day that that would put enough pressure on Clay Bennett and the NBA to have them rethink uh, the decision to move the move the club to Oklahoma City, and it was a it was a unique case because of the public uh, uh, interest in the case uh, that made it a very you know both a challenging and unique case uh, to to try. Um, I think it uh, you know it, it created uh, unique uh, pressures on the lawyers and the judge Judge Peckman and. Uh, on the press and learning how to cover uh, cover a trial, uh, particularly where you had, in some cases, sports writers who wanted to uh, r- look at it as a sporting event rather than a legal trial. Um, but uh, you know, all in all, I think it was a, a well tried case. And so you were the the lead attorney uh, in a major case that sparked a lot of passions and meant a lot to your fellow community members here in Seattle. What did that feel like? Well, it, it's, it's, I mean, it, 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 it's a terrific feeling. That was a case where, you know, walking down the street to the courtroom in the morning, people would high five. It was nice to see that support. And I really wanted to be able to deliver the basketball team to the, to the citizens of, of Seattle. I've, done work for the Pike Place Market and again had similar experience in building out sound transit, working on the baseball stadium. I mean, I think those kind of cases where you are helping the community grow, helping to support uh, community institutions, those those are really special cases and, and what make my lawyering worthwhile. And so I don't want you to violate the attorney-client privilege, but you were in deep with the facts of the case and presented a lot of it publicly. Can you distill what you learned from presenting the case that helps explain why the city was really, why the city really wanted to keep an NBA franchise here in Seattle in 2008? Well, I think it's clear from uh, the way the city and its citizens responded to the case that there was strong support for keeping the Sonics in Seattle. Um, uh, the, the people showing up uh, at the courthouse to support the case, uh, the you know, people involvement uh, with, with talking to the Seattle Times and other newspapers, it was clearly there is a significant portion of the Seattle population that really wanted the Sonics uh, to stay. And I think as a general matter, it is, you know, sports teams are, are, can be a real public benefit for the city. And I don't think that any of the politicians in Seattle uh, or even people who uh, are against uh, the f- keeping or bringing the Sonics back would dismiss or dispute that having a sports team in Seattle is important. Uh, I think the question most fundamentally has to do with should the public pay for that privilege, or is that something that should that expense should be borne by the owners of the teams who tend to be very wealthy? Uh, and then there are it's a question of priority. In other words, even if you are not a big fan of the Sonics or of a basketball team, you know where does that fall in terms of the priority of what Seattle ought to be focusing on as as it grows? In other words, is is it is it worth 
spending public money on a new basketball stadium as compared to other issues that, that the city faces in terms of spending money. But I think it's more that question, the public spending of money to support these teams, that is more controversial than the question of whether or not it's great to have the Sonics in Seattle. And what did you learn through the facts of the case uh, that shapes your opinion of where the priority should be? Uh, as to where the priority, I mean, it, as I said, I, th- I think that that it, it's important, uh, but I, I understand that it's that there's it's not uh, a situation where you could say that you know 75% of the citizens of Seattle would want the Sonics to stay no matter what the cost. Which is not to say that it's not a priority to bring the team back, but simply to say that it's probably not at the top of everyone's priority list. But you know, no public policy is. I mean, everything that the Seattle City Council does and the mayor does now, uh, none of them have uh, super majority support. It's always a, a, a balancing. And then the the citizens speak when they vote. And I, I think we saw that, you know, whether or not it was a small percentage, I think enough people were pissed off at, at Mayor Nichols about the Sonics leaving and the settlement that that probably did affect his moving on or not moving on into in the primary of the year he ran. Tell me a little bit about the settlement and what came afterwards. I feel 100% confident that we would have prevailed, uh, but I think the question at the end of the day for the city was, we prevail, we get the Sonics for two more years, which would have been great for those two years, but at that point, I think it was fairly clear that the NBA uh, and Clay Bennett had committed, uh, entered into agreements to move the move the team to Oklahoma City. So it would have been, uh, you know, a, a little bit of a pirate victory getting those two years and then being stuck with the losses uh, for the five years. It, it is it's a shame that it got to that point where, where the uh, league and the state and the, um, and the citizens of Seattle couldn't work something out. And, and I think it also has to be noted that, you know, part of the problem with why the settlement wasn't as effective as we had hoped was uh, the state legislature. Um, you know, the settlement had an initial payment plus an additional payment that would be due, but only if the state legislature approved the ability of the citizens of Seattle. It wasn't like the city, the legislature was adopting a tab. They, they, if they approved the ability of local citizens to uh, enact a, a tax to raise some money to contribute to to the new arena, and there we had actually worked out a deal with the NBA as to what a uh, rebuilding of Key Arena would look like, what it would cost, what a public contribution would be. Uh, we had a, a ownership group that was willing to step in. Uh, so all of that was set up nicely, and it all depended simply on the state legislature giving the city the authority to do something if the citizens wanted to do that. And uh, unfortunately, there's uh, there's a, a degree of animosity or whatever is the best political term between the state legislature, the non, uh, and the Puget Sound area. And I think that that just led to the state legislature saying, you know, screw you, Seattle, in, in that, that case. I don't know whether that would have made a difference. I don't know whether that would have prompted the NBA to allow a... Uh, team to come to Seattle uh, during that five-year period that uh, would have avoided uh, Clay Bennett paying the extra $30 million. But we would have had an approved, ready 
stadium alternative for the NBA, and that might have made a difference with the Sacramento Kings or some other team in terms of uh, the willingness of the NBA to support uh, a move to Seattle. What lessons from that departure might help uh, as we move forward and consider potentially bringing them back to the city? As with any uh, development based decision, you know, you want to look at what the, the effects are, whether it's better to be down in, in, in Soto or at the Seattle Center. There are a lot of pluses and minuses uh, to both those uh, areas. It was clear from what we saw in the litigation that having the Sonics in uh, the Seattle Center was a significant boon to the businesses in, in that area, no doubt about that. And I think we've seen that they have and some went out of business. There's been a lot of adjustment in those businesses near the Seattle Center since the, the Sonics left. Uh, and, and clearly that is an area that could be revitalized with having a professional basketball team there. But I think you could say the same thing with uh, Soto, that as you you know build out the, the Sonic Stadium along with the Mariner Stadium and the Seahawks Stadium, that area down there will continue to then grow and, and, and serve those sports populations that, that go to those games. So, and I, I do think that the city would be well served by having another entertainment value that could be used for the Sonics or a hockey team or improved uh, concert venue. Uh, I think that would be great, uh, great for the city and particularly where now we're in a situation where the public cost is being minimized or taken away. Uh, it seems to me that uh, a, a no-brainer that, that we should proceed with one or another of those sites. And so was there anything else that you learned in presenting the, your case in this trial uh, that would help people understand what an arena in Soto or an arena in, in Seattle Center uh, would well, be? Well, I think, I think there are a couple of things. I mean, part, part of uh, what we've seen, not just what we saw as to what the NBA was wanting to see in a new arena, if there was redevelopment at Key Arena, or what they saw as the criticisms of existing Key Arena, which I think is not unique to the NBA. Other, uh, the other sports uh, have the same demands, is that, A, you have to have a stadium that is more than just there to sit people in seats, that it has uh, corporate boxes, that it has, uh, you know, attached entertainment uh, uh, values to it that generate revenue. And so I think recognizing that that currently is part of how sports see an effective stadium, but also recognizing that that changes over the years in trying to structure any sort of agreement with a new uh, uh, developer of, a, sta of a, a stadium so that you recognize that 20 years from now or 30 years from now, whenever the lease expires, that there are going to have to be some improvements uh, to sort of modernize uh, uh, a stadium. Otherwise, you end up with a kingdom that gets imploded rather than... Uh, rather than, than being saved. So I think you need to be forward thinking in terms of whatever financial arrangement the city has with whoever. Any other words of wisdom, either for potential owners or for the city, based off of hearing both sides of the case of um, Clay Bennett and the NBA and the city of Seattle? Well, I think it's important as, as much as possible to have uh, to have a significant local ownership interest uh, in, in a club. Um, it, it, 
uh, it is a cement to the community. Uh, I think it's a real shame, and it's not just again a basketball issue with other sports teams. Where you're, and you see right two moving uh, in in the NFL in the last couple of years. Uh, it's a real shame when a team moves and is chasing dollars or, or chasing new stadiums. Uh, and I think to the extent that you are working with uh, with a significant local ownership group, that minimizes the uh, possibility of that. And it also, I think, uh, results in uh, a group that's more committed to trying to work out, maybe make compromise, because at the end of any lease, uh, you're going to have to do something. And we have the Mariners lease is, is, is ending uh, shortly, and there's going to be some renegotiation there. And I have full confidence the Mariners are staying, staying and the, the ownership is committed to making that happen. But it gets... Uh, it gets complicated in the sense that, you know, there are, is, as wonderful as Safeco Field is, there are improvements that, c- that can be made and trying to figure out how to, how to, uh, to do that where the public, o- in that case, the public owns the stadium and, and uh, the Mariners are, are leasing it. Any other words of wisdom, maybe for the city or for the ownership or even just the, the citizens of Seattle? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think it is a real positive in my mind uh, for the city to have, uh, to have uh, sports teams, particularly ones where you have owners committed to making that, that successful. And uh, there is a, a benefit also politically because, uh, you, you know, you are remembered for helping to make that, that happen to the extent right now that we're looking at at uh, the ability to build stadiums and venues without that significant public investment, that's, that, that's a real opportunity that we should not pass. Have you observed any changes in the city or in the NBA that affect the likelihood of a better outcome for the fans, the city, uh, or the team ownership? Well, I think, I think it's a positive for uh, the NBA that we have that they have a new commissioner. I think uh, you know there was some uh, degree that, that that David Stern felt burnt by the Washington State Legislature and the people when they voted on Initiative 91. Uh, and Adam Silver seems to be uh, you know productive and you know supportive of the notion of, of coming back here. So I think that's a that's a real positive change. I mean, the city. One of the things we talked about earlier. One of the things that that sports leagues look for is these, you know, uh, corporate sponsors and corporate boxes uh, to, to corporate boxes and stuff. And and certainly compared to 20, 30 years ago, uh, where we are as a city in terms of, you know, having Amazon here and Expedia and the growth of these uh, corporate, uh, potential corporate sponsors and also the wealth that they have generated to support local ownership is, is a change that I think bodes well in the future for, for having a sports team like the Sonics come back. Any concluding thoughts on a potential return of the Seattle Supersonics, the NBA franchise, to the city of Seattle? I, th- I think it would be great for the city to get the Sonics back. Uh, the way that the settlement agreement works, it uh, allows the Sonics to come back uh, to Seattle if we get an NBA team. Uh, it allows us to reclaim that history. Uh, it probably is not as valuable maybe as it used to be in terms of history because of so many new people having uh, moved to uh, Seattle since the Sonics uh, left. But, you know, for those of us who were were here, myself in the mid-90s when, uh, when they were so great, and particularly people who go back to the late 70s when they won the world championship, uh, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's very meaningful to, it would be very meaningful to get the, the Sonics back. Um, 
you know, championships in cities are moments that we are proud of, and they're also moments that are, are rare. And uh, it would be nice to be able to fully have the Sonics back to celebrate their victory as well as what Sounders did and the, the Seahawks did, and hopefully the Mariners will do soon. All right, so Paul, thank you for joining me today. I appreciate hearing your time and perspective. Appreciate your time and, and hearing your perspective. Appreciate the opportunity to talk about this, and uh, I hope that uh, we get the Sonics back. Thank you. That is all for today's episode of Seattle Growth Podcast. Have an opinion to share about the Sonics' departure? Reach out to me on Twitter at Prof Shulman. I'm eager to hear your perspective. Stay tuned next week to hear from two previous owners of the Sonics who are attempting to bring them back. You will hear an in-depth interview with the co-president of Nordstrom. Pete Nordstrom. Well, I think the prospects of being able to have an arena that works is the biggest thing. That was really the catalyst for why it sold. We, in our arena situation, we were not able to generate enough revenue. And you'll also get an in-depth interview with longtime Sonics executive Wally Walker. I just want to go to some games. It would be such a cathartic event. There's so many diehard Sonic fans that it would just be such a, a, a great experience for our city. And again, I would argue whether someone's a sports fan, the fact that the team is coming back would be a, just a, a great marker for you know who we are as a city and how we've grown and, and how we've learned. Next week's episode will give you a better understanding of the Soto Arena Group's purpose, plan, and next steps. You will not want to miss it. And be sure to subscribe to Seattle Growth Podcast on iTunes. This season features interviews with Lenny Wilkins, Slick Watts, Port Advocates, City Leaders, business leaders, residents, academic experts, and more. You will not want to miss a single episode. I'm Jeff Shulman, and I'm eager to take you on this journey in the second season of Seattle Growth Podcast.